Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Nicola Tallis on Margaret Beaufort. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hook. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. Today, we're not reviewing a consort, but rather we are interviewing the historian Nicola Tallis, in particular, about her biography on Margaret Beaufort, who was a mother and grandmother of the first Tudor kings, though never actually, as we shall hear, queen in her own right. Just skip that bit. Is it too dangerous? Okay, so we are very excited to be joined on the podcast today by the author and historian Nicola Tallis. Nicola, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be here with you. Uh, So first of all, would you mind uh, introducing yourself to the listeners in terms of uh, who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an author and historian. I have written three, I guess technically four books because I've got a new one coming out in the autumn. So I, um, yeah, exciting stuff. So I write about Tudor history. My first book was Crown of Blood, uh, The Deadly Inheritance of Lady Jane Grey. My second book was Elizabeth's Rival about Latisse Knowles, the wife of Robert Dudley. And my third book was Uncrowned Queen, which is a biography of Margaret Beaufort. And my soon-to-be fourth book is called All the Queen's Jewels, 1445 to 1548, Power, Majesty and Display. And that is based on the research that I conducted for my doctorate, which I did at the University of Winchester. Um, So I finished that in at the beginning of 2019. And that examines the jewellery collections of the Queens of the Wars of the Roses and the early Tudor Queens. Awesome. Well, that's bang on where we are. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, perfect fit. (laughs) And uh, you've got a podcast as well, which um, sort of looks at that. Yeah, so my podcast is called History Gems. And that, again, as you said, that's inspired by my love of the history of jewellery. And it's all about jewels that have a story to tell, which every jewel does. Um, So, um, you know, that's with... uh, I speaks to somebody different in each episode and we look at jewels throughout all periods of history and in all geographical areas so so yeah that's that's been great fun to do as well now for us today we uh, love to talk to you about margaret beaufort um and rather than me just sort of saying who she is could you give us a quick which is obviously the hardest question for this, <laughs> this sort of thing is there <laughs> quick introduction to who margaret beaufort is particularly with someone like ali in mind who does struggle with his beauforts and of anjous and his margarets there's too many of those yeah i know there are a lot of margarets it's, it is really confusing so i do you know what even when i'm talking about her sometimes i have to run it through my head mentally <laughs> and think who is this woman <laughs> uh, margaret beaufort in essence, is best known as being the mother of Henry VII, the first Tudor king. And she was also the great granddaughter of John of Gaunt, who was the uh, son of Edward III. So she was a woman with royal connections and royal blood, who was very conscious of this throughout her life. And some would say that she was the foundress of the Tudor dynasty. So with that in mind, perhaps should be better known and remembered than she is. 
What led you to writing about her? It was actually my editor's idea. Ah, um, because, you pushed towards her. <laughs> well, yeah, I, sort of, because I had looked at Margaret when I was studying for my doctorate, um, which even though Margaret wasn't a queen, even though she actually in some ways behaved as though she was a queen, hence the title of my book. Um, I was using her when I was studying for my doctorate as a point of comparison because for some queens like Elizabeth Woodville, we don't have a lot of evidence about their jewellery collections, whereas Margaret, there was quite a lot of evidence. So, um, so that's sort of how I became aware of her. And then my editor, after I'd finished writing Elizabeth's Rival at the end of 2017, um, my editor had said to me, oh, how about Margaret Beaufort? And I actually had another book in mind at that time, but she, my editor asked me to go away and write a list of pros and cons for each book. So as you can imagine, I had a huge list of pros for the book that I really wanted to write. <laughs> and then maybe like two or three for Margaret Beaufort. <laughs> and um, my editor came back and said, yeah, I've spoken to everybody at the publishing house about it. And it's a unanimous decision. Margaret Beaufort it is. <laughs> <laughs> But it was it was actually really good. I'm glad that it worked out that way because when I came to look at her, I found that there was actually far more to her than what I originally thought. And I really enjoyed having the opportunity to research her life and tell her story. Why? How come there was no evidence for Elizabeth Woodville's jewelry? Is that just because she was more obscure to start with? So didn't I mean? Are these inherited collections? Usually they have. Quite often they're inherited collections. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it just it just sort of depends. It could be it could be the case that there was more evidence and that it no longer survives. Uh, because if you look at Margaret of Anjou, who came before Elizabeth Woodville, we've got quite a lot of evidence about her jewel collections. So sometimes it can just be the case that things haven't survived um, or, or yeah, maybe that it wasn't recorded in the first place. It's difficult to say, but it's the same for uh, Richard III's queen, Anne Neville. We don't really know, well, we don't know much about her in general, but mm. even less about mm. her jewellery collection. So, yeah, it's it's luck of the draw sometimes. Right. What does Margaret's jewellery collection uh, tell us about her? Oh, my gosh. It tells us that she was a woman who had so much material wealth at her disposal. I mean, everything in her house was made of gold or silver or silver gilt. It was all and gem encrusted. Um, I mean, we've got an inventory of just her chapel plate at her palace of Collie Weston, which was in Northamptonshire. And I mean, she had the most amazing collection of, you know, of, of plates, of cups, gold cups, of crucifixes. And, and then, yeah, we look at her jewellery collection. She's got diamond rings. Um, she's got a jewel shaped like a serpent's tongue. So I think... The other thing that it tells us about her is that contrary to her surviving portraits, which show her as, well, show her in later life, um, dressed in black and on her knees in prayer, I think that the jewellery inventories that we have of hers show that she was a woman who really liked the finer things in life and who was surrounded by luxury and wasn't quite as dour and serious as she is often portrayed. 
Yeah, because that was the word that I was sort of going for, actually, Dow. And Henry VII as well, I guess, get, has a bit of a mm. reputation for that. And I don't know if it's the same with him, that it's maybe it's his later years that sort of colours the perception, but that actually there's a lot more sort of vibrancy and almost flamboyance going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think Henry VII's had a really, really bad press. And he does have this reputation as being a bit of a miser who didn't like to spend money. And as you say, I think a lot of that is influenced by his behaviour in later years. But actually, um, whether this is something he inherited from Margaret or not, I don't know. But I think it's a possibility. I think that they were both very aware of the need to impress and the need to showcase magnificence, particularly when Henry became king. And, you know, it's it's a period when outward display is of the utmost importance and it says a lot about your dynasty um you know the way in which you're dressed the way in which you uh, wear your jewels all of that is really important and henry the seventh in particular i mean he was spending thousands and thousands of pounds on jewels and clothes so he's not the the tight-fisted monarch that he has often been portrayed to be and as I say, it wouldn't surprise me if that was something that he had certainly learned in part from his mother. Um, what world is she born into, though? Like, was she a significant person when she was born? What? How important was she as a Beaufort daughter? She was, uh, in the whole context of the 15th century, she was a member of the royal family so I guess in in that sense she was important and perhaps more so given that at the time that she was born in 1443 Henry VI didn't have a child of his own so I guess you could say that Margaret was a potential heiress to the throne at the time of her birth she had quite an unsettled start in life because she was literally just a few days away from her first birthday when her father, John Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset, died. And there are some hints in contemporary sources that he died at his own hand because of this military campaign in France that he had been a part of that had ended in his disgrace. Um, But Margaret by reason of his death, was left a very wealthy heiress. And, you know, with no male protector, that was that was hugely significant. And it wasn't long before Margaret was made the ward of William de la Poole, who was the Earl, and, and then the Duke of Suffolk, who was Henry VI's great favourite. So even from a very, very early age, there were men around her who were trying to cover her fortune. And I think that that's really where her significance lies at this time is the fact that she had a lot of wealth in terms of property. And there were many men who were eager to secure that on behalf of their their heirs, which was the hope of um, of William de la Poole, who betrothed Margaret to his son and then married her to his son. It was a, a marriage of words only. And, you know, the children, they and they were children, they were only like six years old at this time. So, um, yes, Suffolk's actions were an attempt to secure his son's future, really, by 
securing Margaret's wealth for him. Um, but that that didn't really work out in the end because Margaret's marriage was then later dissolved by Henry VI before it had a chance to be consummated. So what is her relationship to Henry VI? So um, they are, oh gosh, you know, this is one that I always have to think. <laughs> I always ask Graham this. <laughs> they're like, I think I'm, I'm correct to say that they are cousins. Okay. Not first cousins, but they are, yeah, they are related by blood. But she's that gang. She's that gang. Yeah, she is very much that gang. And then later, uh, Henry also becomes her brother-in-law when she marries as her second husband, um, Henry's half-brother, Edmund Tudor. So then, yeah, the the links between them are strengthened with that marriage. So when she marries Edmund Tudor, is that um, is that for Edmund Tudor a big step up or is it a good marriage for Margaret? as well because obviously Henry the sixth is the one that's sort of pushing it yeah it's I suppose it's it's good in both senses to be fair because it's it's great for Edmund because Henry the sixth was really fond of his half siblings um Jasper Tudor and Edmund Tudor and by marrying his one of his brothers to Margaret who as I said was a wealthy heiress and a wealthy heiress of royal blood he was doing pretty well to secure Edmund's future. But for Margaret as well, you know, to be married to the king's half-brother, that brought prestige with it. Um, no, no wealth as such, because, you know, well, unless Henry chose to bestow extra lands and, and property and whatever on them. Um, but yeah, it, it worked, it worked pretty nicely for both sides, but particularly so for Edmund. And that is why Edmund was so eager to consummate his marriage with Margaret so early, because we don't know exactly how old Edmund Tudor was at the time of his marriage to Margaret, but somewhere in his mid twenties. And Margaret at this time is 12 years old. So she is legally old enough to live and cohabit with a husband. But generally, even in the 15th century, um, consummation was frowned upon at that age. And generally many contemporaries chose to, to wait a bit longer. But Edmund was so eager to secure an interest in Margaret's inheritance through consummation and producing, hopefully, a child, that that just wasn't an option for him. And he uh, insisted on consummating their marriage immediately. It's not a good look for Edmund, is it? Even the motivations aren't that aren't that uh, noble. Hmm. No, no, it's not a good look for Edmund. So, no. no, I mean, it's absolutely... It's horrific by modern day standards. Let's face it; it's just yeah. it's horrendous. But even by contemporary standards, you know, it's 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 not looking great either, really. And we know also that it's made worse by the fact that Margaret was hugely underdeveloped physically, and contemporaries remark on the fact that she was very slight and small of personage. So she was a child. So I mean, that just makes it even more horrific yeah because when in this series we're doing otherwise we're doing the consorts of england and there okay. you know have been a number that have married at that sort of age or younger but usually i put in the caveat that 
they wouldn't have been consummating the marriage at that point. Yeah. They'd get married, but it will be years before actually anything happens. Even going back to, I think John, you know, he marries a, basically a child bride. Yeah. But I think the suggestion is there is a delay before any children. Mm. So, I mean, you said said he's very keen to secure an heir, but why why is it so urgent? Like, why couldn't he have waited a few years? Is it because everything's so unstable at that period, or does it just tell us something about his character potentially that he does that? Yeah, I think it does say something about his character. I mean, yes, the the period. So this is 1455 when Margaret and Edmund Tudor are married. So it is the year that the first battle of the Wars of the Roses is fought, so the first battle of St Albans. So it is a period of political turmoil and political unrest. And uh, Henry VI has only in, you know, 1453 finally obtained a male heir in the form of Prince Edward Uh, but of course he's a baby at this time Henry's health his mental health is is very fragile of course at this time so there were there were there had even been some whispers that um, Henry had considered making his both sorry his Tudor half-brother potentially some kind of heir to the throne. Um, So that may have partially influenced Edmund's decision to to push ahead and and consummate this this marriage. But I think really it was just a way of trying to secure his own interests so that nobody could come along and annul or dissolve his marriage with Margaret on the grounds of non-consummation in the same way. And this is why Margaret's marriage to the son of um, William de la Poole was so easily dissolved because it hadn't been consummated. Whereas if you have consummated a marriage, it's much harder to break that contract then. So I think it was a way of Edmund trying to secure his own interests and make sure that yeah he was going to be well looked after. Oh dear, oh dear. Or all of that is a cover for just a bad, bad man. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But what's quite interesting, what I think is quite interesting, is that later, after Edmund died, is that when Margaret made her original will, she originally stipulated that she wanted to be buried next to Edmund, oh. and uh, that's something that I think quite interesting. But I think also that maybe that is done with the benefit of knowing what happened after, in terms of knowing that she and Edmund had created the first Tudor King of England. So Mm -hmm. I don't think that we can say a great deal about, we can say a great deal about Margaret's feelings towards Edmund from that. And she changes her mind later anyway, and she's not buried with Edmund. Um, But yeah, it's difficult to ascertain exactly what the nature of their relationship was in personal terms. And we don't know a great deal about Edmund either. So yeah, I mean, it is difficult not to not to think of him in a negative mm. light because of his behaviour. Um, yeah, but we just don't know enough about him to judge fully. Which partly because, and probably not too many people shedding tears at this point, that he doesn't actually live to see Henry born, does he? He's not around for very long. No, yeah, that's absolutely right. So he died in November 1456, by which time Margaret was heavily pregnant with her first child. 
And, you know, the reports are, or the suggestions are that he died of plague at Carmarthen Castle. So, as you say, at, at this time, he, well, he didn't live to, to see his son born or the fulfilment of his destiny. So is that, is that fate? Who knows? <laughs> but it's horrifying for Margaret, you know, she's what, sort of 12 or 13 at this point. She's... Yeah. And I think it's like, is it true that people sort of often say about her that the birth was particularly horrific for her? I guess because you said because she's so slight and so young. So, you know, she's a child with a child um, and widowed. Yeah, exactly that. It's it's a, a hugely difficult time for Margaret. And, you know, the political unrest that's going on just makes it 10 times worse. So she... Upon Edmund's death, she sought refuge with her brother-in-law, Jasper Tudor, at Pembroke Castle, which was just a couple of miles away from where she'd been living with Edmund at Lamphy. And, uh, yeah, it's here that in January 1457, at the age of 13, she gives birth to a son. And as you say, her friend and confessor in later life, Bishop Fisher, who most people know for the fact that Henry VIII had him executed. He says of this time that it seemed a miracle that at that age and of so little a personage, anyone should have been born at all. And, you know, he also talks about the fact that it was a, a very perilous time and that, um, that Margaret had also narrowly escaped the plague from which Edmund had died so it does sort of paint this this picture of the terror and the uncertainty that Margaret was faced with at this time which was I think without doubt we can say that that was the most challenging and difficult period of her life and the Wars of the Roses is uh, going on <laughs> yeah and the Wars of the Roses is going on so it's nobody's got a clue what's going on it's um yeah it's a, it's a very very difficult time and yeah poor old Margaret but I think well obviously she survives she survives mm. this and I think that it taught her many important lessons and I also think that this time in her life really shaped her yeah. and how she came to behave in subsequent years she doesn't have any more children so is that I don't know if we could possibly know this, but like, is that a biological thing or do you think that's a choice that she made or perhaps just just didn't happen? Or yeah, I think this is something that I've pondered long and hard for many years. And I think that it's, it is difficult to say because, you know, it's difficult judging any sort of medical issue when it's mm. 500 years ago. It's always dangerous territory. But my own theory and it is only a theory is that she may possibly have made a conscious decision not to become pregnant again we know that the experience left her psychologically scarred and that becomes apparent in later years when her son is negotiating a marriage for his eldest daughter her namesake margaret and margaret urges henry not to allow Margaret, Margaret the Younger, to be married too early in case, you know, the marriage, when it comes to be consummated, does her granddaughter some damage. So, so clearly she bears the emotional scars of her own early marriage through to later life. 
Um, but I also think that it's quite interesting that Margaret's third husband, Henry Stafford, because, yeah, she did marry twice more. So technically she could have had other children. But um, there are suggestions that Henry Stafford had had health problems. And even though she and Stafford were very happy on a personal level, um, you know, I, I can't help but, but wonder if she may have chosen him more for or that marriage may have been arranged more for um you know the interests of of her son in mind rather than anything else because she was very sorry he was Stafford did take an interest in her son and and then when she comes to make her fourth marriage to Thomas Stanley he like her has been widowed and he's already got children and that is very much a marriage that's made for political means so yeah I can't help but feel that maybe she was quite uh, she selected her future husbands very carefully with an eye to yeah possibly not becoming pregnant again but it is only a theory god don't blame her though it's a strong theory isn't it <laughs> i mean it's likely yeah she yeah she had such a, a difficult time and i mean yeah who can blame her for not wanting oh. to go through that again um but yeah who knows we don't know if if there was any physical damage that was, oh, was yeah. her. we can't say is there any element possibly in which sort of henry becomes so much her focal point that th- there was almost sort of no other space in her life for other children like it feels like her whole life as you can understand but her whole life is you know then him yeah exactly I think I often say this but I think that Henry was the love of Margaret's life um and I and I completely agree I don't think that there was really any room for another man or possibly even another child we know that she loves her grandchildren very much and the family meant a great deal to her but I think that um I think Henry really was the center of her universe and I also I think that that is quite interesting given that she was only 13 at the time that he was born and you know also when you consider that they didn't spend an awful lot of time together either. And by the concepts of, you know, of, of, of the 15th century, that wasn't in itself particularly unusual, unusual in some respects, when you think that children would have been, noble children would have been passed over to a wet nurse and a plethora of nursery staff to care for them. But of course, the Wars of the Roses has a completely different impact on that. And who Henry is comes to have a completely different impact on that. And so it does mean that, yeah, Margaret, um, not through choice, doesn't see a lot of Henry at all. And I think that when Henry eventually does become king, the bonds between them are really strengthened and it becomes apparent just how much Margaret has sacrificed for her son and just how much she adores him. And she has often been criticised for being too close and too overbearing, perhaps, when Henry becomes king. But actually, when you look at the context of it all and look at the fact that she she didn't see him for 
more than 14 years at one point. You know, it's hardly surprising that she wants to spend all of her time with him. So, yeah, it's it's there is definitely a very strong bond that's forged between mother and son. And I think it's quite a unique bond considering a the the period into which Henry was born and the circumstances of both his and Margaret's lives. So do we know what her ambitions would have been for Henry? Because it's often sort of said that, you know, he has this incredibly weak claim to the throne when he becomes king in 1485 and all that sort of stuff. But actually, as you said, Margaret is of effectively royal stock. She's from John of Gaunt. She's related to Henry VI. So what would Henry VII's life potentially have been from Margaret's perspective in the 1450s? I think that he, I mean, he wasn't exactly, even though the king was his godfather, I should have said, he was probably named for Henry VI, who was his uncle and probable godfather. And, um, but I think further than that, he wouldn't really have been of particular importance aside from his position as the king's nephew. Um, So he could have expected to have been raised you know, in a uh, a life of luxury, I suppose, all the time, and perhaps with a view to playing a role at Henry VI's court as an advisor or, you know, whatever role that Henry chose to bestow on him. So uh, certainly there isn't any truth in the notion that, which you know, has been something that has been depicted in popular culture, that from the moment of his birth, Margaret harboured these ambitions that Henry would become King of England. There's none of that because there would be no reason for that. Henry VI has his own son and heir at that time. And, you know, he's he's certainly looked after his half-brothers, Edmund and Jasper Tudor. And so there's every reason to think that he would have done the same for Henry Tudor as well, um, given the opportunity. But of course, as we know, it doesn't quite play out like that, thanks to the events of the Wars of the Roses. So what's Margaret's journey after that? So you said she doesn't spend a lot of time with Henry because he's sent away. And then it's actually surprisingly soon afterwards that she marries again to Henry Stafford, isn't it? So is is she kind of in control of her own destiny once Edmund Tudor dies? Yeah, yeah, she is really. And this is what I think is quite interesting about her because she, yeah, she's widowed by the age of 13 with a young child to care for. But she recognised, she was um, precocious enough to recognise the situation that she was in because she had no, again, for um, another point in her life, she had no male protector And this was very much, of course, a male-dominated world in which women were characterised by the relationships with the men in their lives. And so Margaret has nobody to protect her. So she did realise that a marriage was going to be the best course of action to protect not only her, but also her son. So it's quite interesting, yeah, that at 13 years old, the impetus probably did come from her in terms of arranging her third marriage. And she chose somebody who 
um, had an affiliation with the House of Lancaster, so her own family, which was Henry Stafford, the second son of the Duke of Buckingham. And, you know, she also, of course, had her own son's interests to consider as well. And it was imperative that any husband would be prepared to take care of Henry as well. So it's almost a year after Henry's birth that Margaret is married to um, Henry Stafford in January 1458. And we don't know exactly what happened to Henry Tudor at that point because Margaret goes to live with Henry Stafford at Bourne in Lincolnshire, which was part of her inheritance. Um, and it's often said, and I think this probably is the case, that Henry Tudor stayed behind at Pembroke Castle to be raised by his uncle, Jasper Tudor. I think that probably is the case, but we don't know 100% for sure. And um, he stayed with Henry Tudor, and sorry, he stayed with his uncle, Jasper Tudor, until Jasper was forced to flee by means of you know, the Wars of the Roses. And Henry then came under the guardianship of um, William Herbert, who was a great supporter of Edward IV. So Edward IV had successfully managed to topple Henry VI from the throne in 1460. And uh, yes, so Henry comes into the guardianship of William Herbert. He goes to live with Herbert at Raglan Castle. And we know that Margaret was lucky enough to be able to stay in touch with her son and that she went to great efforts to do so. Uh, we know that she visited Henry at Raglan at least once for a week. But otherwise, all contact between them is, is pretty fragmented. And, and then in 1471, in the aftermath of the Battle of Tewkesbury, Henry is forced to flee abroad into exile. Um, so he goes with his uncle, Jasper Tudor, and he doesn't return again until, well, he does return very briefly, but he doesn't even set foot on English soil in 1483. Um, he doesn't return again to the country properly until 1485 when the Battle of Bosworth rages. So there's a lot of toing and froing, upping and downing, um, very, very brief pockets where Margaret can spend time with her son. Um, and in between all of this, she is trying to navigate her way through the Wars of the Roses and protect herself, protect her family, protect their interests. There's, there's, I mean, as you know, the Wars of the Roses is hugely complicated. One minute Henry's king, the next minute said Edward's king. Henry's briefly restored, then Edward's back. So it's kind of all over the place. And that is, I think, also characteristic of Margaret's life during this year. It's just all over the place and it is a matter of survival. Um, I, I don't want to fall into the trap of uh, history where <laughs> women never get a lot of credit and we, uh, for their actions. And we've been working hard on Rex Factor through this series to, to put that right. But it's incredible that the that a thirteen year old girl or thirteen year old person rather can uh, think with such sort of political clarity about their next marriage. Did 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 she have advisors that were 
working with her that uh, she was close to or anything? Like her, like she was alone, but how alone? Well, so she's got uh, Margaret had she she was by from what we can tell she was quite close to her mother Margaret Beecham, and you know she also had a stepfather as well, um, Lionel Wells. So it's it's very difficult to say because we don't know, and it is because of the nature of the time that women aren't really mentioned as much in the sources. And so it's quite difficult trying to piece together exactly what happened and what may have influenced decisions. Uh, I'm sure that, or I feel sure that maybe Margaret had consulted with her mother and her stepfather before making this marriage. Perhaps even Jasper Tudor had had some hand in helping to arrange this for her. But it's just difficult to know. We just don't know who she was in yeah. contact with exactly at this time and and how these decisions were were concluded. I mean, it's easy to imagine, like her later character makes it easy to imagine that you can just sort of reduce that person down to miniature, 13, there she is. And she's <laughs> yeah. making this, you know, she's just as bold and everything, but uh, amazing still. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, she... She was a, an amazing woman. And as I said, I think very much that these earlier experiences in her life came to shape her later behaviour and her character. So with the Edward Thorpe being, of course, a Yorkist, Margaret, um, a Lancastrian, you said Stafford as well as a Lancastrian. So what, what does she do when Edward IV is there? So you said how um, Henry Tudor... Um, doesn't have to go off into exile initially when Edward comes to the throne, but he does after Tewkesbury. So is Margaret a player at all in the events of the 1460s or is she kind of keeping quiet? What's she, what's she doing in that period? Yeah, so she she very much tried to ingratiate herself with the Yorkist regime, So, which is quite difficult for her to begin with because her husband, Henry Stafford, had fought for Henry VI at the Battle of Towton. So that momentous battle that sees Edward firmly establish himself on England's throne. And Henry Stafford has backed the wrong horse, so to speak. Uh, but through Edward IV's good graces, he is pardoned. And um, Margaret and, and Stafford basically do their best at this time to, to keep a low profile and to, um, to just be seen to bow the knee to the enemy. Um, although we do know that very gradually Edward began to, I don't know if we can say trust Margaret, but he certainly became more, maybe maybe tolerant of her. Um, so we know that in 1468, uh, Edward IV came to visit Margaret and Henry Stafford at Woking, which was a former Beaufort property that was Margaret's favourite home. Um, so we know that yeah, they hosted a royal visit there. And by all accounts, Edward seems to have had quite a nice time. They put on quite a good spread from, <laughs> from what the sources tell us. And Margaret was very much the hostess with the mostess. Um, and then in 1470, after all of this, um, Henry VI is briefly restored to the throne. And, you know, this gives Margaret an opportunity to spend a bit more time with her son very briefly. But yeah, Edward comes back in 1471 
Um, in April, we see the Battle of Barnet fought. And for Margaret, this has terrible consequences because Henry Stafford, this time he fights for Edward IV at the Battle of Barnet, but he was badly injured and he died in October, possibly as a result of the injuries that had been inflicted on him at Barnet. We don't really know. Um, anyway, May 1471, Battle of Tewkesbury is fought. And this also has dire consequences for Margaret because Henry VI's son and heir, Prince Edward, is killed at Tewkesbury. And in the aftermath of Tewkesbury, Henry VI is probably murdered at the in the Tower of London. And suddenly, all of the main... Lancastrian male figureheads are gone. And so this brings Henry Tudor and his weak claim far more to the forefront than he has been until now. And so uh, according to some sources, it's, it's Margaret who urges Henry to flee abroad for safety uh, because he, I'm sorry, Edward IV's behaviour at Tewkesbury had shown that he was determined to stamp out the House of Lancaster permanently. You know, there are reports of just how ruthless he was towards the Lancastrians in that battle. And though we know that Henry Tudor heeded this advice wherever it came from, and though he'd been aiming for France, he ended up in Brittany where he was basically subjected to an, a nice kind of house imprisonment by Duke Francis II of Brittany with Jasper Tudor as well. So again, Margaret's fortunes have turned. She's lost her husband. She's on her own again. Um, and it's at this point, and the House of York are in control. So how is she going to navigate this situation? Well, she decides to marry again. And again, a sign of her pragmatism, I think, is she recognises now that Edward IV's claim to the throne is pretty, pretty solid. It's pretty stable. And so she decides to, to marry somebody who has close affiliations with the House of York. And her choice of husband falls on Thomas Stanley, who's a member of Edward IV's household. And so we see over the next few years, Margaret really trying to do her best to ingratiate herself with Edward. And I think that this is very much an attempt to affect reconciliation between um you know, herself and, and Edward, Lancaster and York, mm -hmm. but all with an attempt, or sorry, all with keeping her son's uh, safety and well-being, um, you know, that's, that's very much her priority at this time. So was she, in, uh, after the Battle of Tewkesbury, was she, I could see how um, Henry would be in mortal danger, but would she have been as well, or, or like she'd just had her stuff nicked and be on your way <laughs> <laughs> she well she certainly wasn't in the same kind of danger as her husband no because she hadn't been well as far as we know anyway she hadn't been directly involved in any of these battles mm. she was you know she was a woman nobody would have considered her as a potential threat to the throne and you know her behavior during edward the fourth's first reign had shown that 
you know, she wasn't a threat in her own right, really. She was very content to keep a low profile and, and keep herself to herself in order to protect her family. So there was no reason to think that she wouldn't do that again. Mm. Does she sort of, like we talk about ingratiating herself with Edward IV, but um, it seems like, does she get close to Elizabeth Woodville? Do they have a friendship or is it just because she's a prominent woman at court that she is in the Queen's household? Do you know, that's it's one of the really frustrating gaps that we don't know a great deal about. Um, we do know that Edward IV, gradually, because of her marriage to Lord Stanley, we gradually see Margaret beginning to play a more prominent role at court. So when the court travelled to Fotheringay in 1476 for the reburial of Edward's father, the Duke of York, uh, Margaret is there. She's very much a, a part of that ceremony. And the Queen is, of course, there as well. And then in 1480, when Elizabeth Woodville gives birth to her last child, Princess Bridget, it's Margaret who's given the honour of carrying the baby at the christening. So, you know, that's a significant honour. Whether we can infer from that that it suggests any other kind of relationship with Elizabeth Woodville, we don't really know. Um, we know, of course, that later on, uh, Margaret works with Elizabeth Woodville um, in 1483 but yeah it's difficult to to say whether whether they got on whether Elizabeth liked her whether she liked Elizabeth we just don't really know. So say 1483 is the, the year that everything changes. Edward IV dies unexpectedly and then we have princes in the tower Richard III. It's become fashionable that if you're not going to say it's Richard that Margaret's name has sort of become associated with it. Is is there anything in that at all, or is it just trying to find a different name, do you think? I think I love the fact that you sort of said, oh yeah, that it's become fashionable now. I think that that's actually that that is actually just it. It's, you know, who else can we blame? Oh, well, there's that Margaret Bayford knocking around <laughs> at the time. So <laughs> and that's that is very much my feeling. I think um you know, when I came to this, I thought I'm going to just look at all the evidence and see where it takes me. And none of it took me in Margaret's direction. And I think that there's a reason for that, which is because she wasn't responsible for their disappearance. Um, and I think that, you know, the first evidence that we have that links Margaret with the disappearance of the princes is around 100 years or so after um you know it's in the 16th century sorry 16th century 17th century anyway it's about 100 years or so after margaret's death um a bit more than that and i think that that in itself is is pretty suggestive because i feel that if she had been linked at all then there would have been some whisper of it in contemporary reports and there isn't anything so no I don't think that she had any role to play in their disappearance of course she does ultimately benefit from it but I think that that is more a product of of circumstance than than anything else so do you think once um whatever happens to them happens but the key thing obviously is the fact that they're no longer on the throne Richard III is but that is a controversial turn of events 
So do you think that she sees that moment as rather than thinking about getting Henry back, that she now is actually thinking about him on the throne? I think, yeah, I I actually think that the turning point for her came the day before Richard's coronation. So 5th of July, 1483. This is where... I am convinced that the the change in Margaret's mindset was triggered because we know that on that day, Margaret had a meeting with Richard. And although we don't know exactly what was spoken about during the course of this meeting, um, although, you know, there's some some suggestion that she spoke to him about a debt that was owing. But I think it's inconceivable that she wouldn't have mentioned her son to Richard at this point. Um, So, you know, shortly before Edward IV's death, there had been a promise of a pardon for Henry so that he could come home. And then, of course, that's all thwarted or or thrown up into the air when Edward dies, as you say, unexpectedly. I think that either Margaret, sorry, Richard refused to honour this pardon or he said something that made Margaret uneasy about Henry's future. And I think it was at this point that we see, you know, all of the cautious behaviour that she's shown up until now. So all of the ingratiating with the House of York, it was almost like at this point, she thought, do you know what? I've waited this long and I can't wait any longer. I need my son with me. And I think it's at this point that, yeah, her, her mindset changes and, that she very quickly becomes involved with uh, a plot to unseat Richard and, yeah, espies this opportunity for Henry to become king instead. And fortunately for her, because of Richard's behaviour and the manner in which he's come to the throne, she's able to, to gain some valuable allies, most chiefly in the form of Edward IV's widow, Elizabeth, and sees a way that this could work out quite well for both of them, because wouldn't it be great for Margaret if her son could marry Elizabeth's daughter, Elizabeth of York? Many believe her to be the rightful heir to the throne after the disappearance of her brothers. Hey, this could work out brilliantly for everyone. So, yeah, I think I feel pretty confident that we can pinpoint Margaret's change of mind down to um, the 5th of July, 1483. So is she then, do you think, is she the main driver in Henry's bid for the throne at this point? Because obviously she's the one that's actually there in the centre of events, as you said, Henry's naturally in the country. So is she really the one that's masterminding what's going on? Yeah, I think very much so. I think very much so. And we know that... You know, she was using her physician as a go-between between herself and Elizabeth Woodville. Um, we know that the Duke of Buckingham became involved. And I know there are there are different lines of thought over whether, um, you know, Buckingham was backing Henry Tudor or whether he was actually going to back himself. And, uh, and you know, how Margaret convinced him to become involved like we just we don't know the answers to that but one way or another she and Buckingham ended up working together but yes I think that Margaret is very much the driving force at this point and um and yeah she sees this as an opportunity for her son and perhaps she she genuinely felt that this was the only way that Henry would be able to return home 
Um, and I think, yeah, she also really seized on on Richard's pop, uh, sorry, unpopularity at this time as well, and and really kind of just took advantage of that. So Henry the Seventh becomes king. He wins the Battle of Bosworth. Richard the Third is killed. Um, obviously, they are finally back together again, mother and son, and he is now king. So what what happens at that point in terms of her status in the country, her role in Henry's government? So her life is really transformed and she immediately becomes styled and addressed as my lady, the king's mother. So she is, bar Elizabeth of York, she is the most important woman in the realm. And she really pushed herself to the forefront of events. And this is really where um, comes back to this comes back to what I was saying earlier about the fact that she has sort of been criticized for this in the fact that she's always there. But I think considering all that she's been through and all that Henry's been through, it's understandable. And I think what's also important to remember is that she wouldn't be there if Henry didn't want her there. So there is this very close bond between mother and son. Their, uh, you know, apartments were set aside in all of the royal palaces for Margaret. And we know that in some of them, so including uh, the tower, um, there was even an interlinking chamber between Margaret's rooms and Henry's. So they're clearly spending a great deal of time together. And we also know that in the first first parliament of Henry's reign, so Battle of Bosworth is August, first parliament is in November, and Margaret is declared a femme soul or a soul person by parliament. Now, whether this is done at her own request or Henry's own instigation, we don't know, possibly a combination of both. But this, it basically gives her independence in both a legal and a financial sense. So to all intents and purposes, she doesn't need her husband, Lord Stanley, anymore. He served his purpose. And uh, they do re- remain on good terms, I should say. But uh, in many other respects, they they pretty much live separate lives and, and, and separate. Um, so Margaret really is the most powerful woman in the land. She's not given an official role in government as such, but... We know, you know, contemporaries are talking about the fact that if you want anything from the king, then the king's mother is the one that you go and speak to. She's the one with all the influence. And um, we also know that later on, um, Margaret basically becomes Henry's unofficial lieutenant in the Midlands. Um, She sets up her headquarters at her palace of Collyweston. And here she basically begins administering justice on Henry's behalf. And, you know, she she listens to all sorts of disputes and all sorts of cases. Um, You know, there are there are people brought before her who have been making slurs about Henry's parentage and his heritage in a tavern in Colchester, for example. There are all sorts of things that that are brought before Margaret for her to judge on. And what's quite interesting is, again, Henry is allowing his mother to do this. And this is a role that we haven't seen a woman play before. So Margaret had effectively 
built this new this new role for her to play in the political life of the Tudor dynasty and Henry is more than happy for her to do this so he obviously he obviously trusted her and he obviously believed that she was a woman of sound and good judgment and ability so because Elizabeth Woodville is still alive when she's then the queen mother no yeah mother of mother of the king but she, but then Elizabeth Woodville is uh, the ex-queen and mother of the current queen. Like, where does the, how does that work as a relationship between the two very powerful women? Again, it's, it's just something that we just don't really know. But we do know that Elizabeth Woodville doesn't hang around at court for too long because she is, again, this is sort of debatable and very controversial. She's either banished or retires from court to Bermondsey Abbey, uh, so just across the river from the Tower in 1487. And there's been some suggestion that this may have been because she was involved in the Lambert Simnel conspiracy to topple Henry from the throne. Um, There's been some suggestion that Henry VII pushed her out of the way um, and that Margaret may have had some hand in that. Um, we just don't know really what the reasons for that were. I suspect actually that Henry didn't really fancy having to financially support his own wife, a queen, um, having to support Margaret and having to support a mother-in-law as well. So I personally think that he probably thought, well, do you know what? She's had her day. She can, we can send her off to retirement now and, She'll live, uh, you know, I don't know, she doesn't seem to have lived a particularly great life, but um, we don't know much about her her life in Bermondsey. But yeah, I think that, I don't think that there really is much of a relationship between Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret Beaufort at this point. Um, but we just don't really know. It's like retiring racehorses. It's <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Retiring queens, yeah. <laughs> And on top of that, as you say, we've got the mother of the king, who isn't technically queen. We've got the ex-queen, who's now the mother of the queen. But we also have Elizabeth of York, who is actually... Actually queen, yeah. Actually yeah. queen. So what do we know anything about that dynamic? The sort of mother-in-law from hell, potentially, is there's such influence over her son. But is there anything to justify that perception? Or I don't think so, really. I think that a lot of that has come from a comment that was made by the Spanish ambassador who remarked upon the fact that Margaret had a lot of influence and that Elizabeth of York didn't really like it. Now, I think that by no means would Margaret have been the, you know, you wouldn't have wanted to be in her company at all times. I think she was overbearing. And I think that there would undoubtedly have been times when she got on Elizabeth's nerves and Elizabeth would have loved to have shoved her into the background. Um, But personally, I think that all the other evidence suggests that Elizabeth of York and Margaret got along quite well together. So they founded a Chantry Chapel together. Um, We know that they worked uh, on behalf of um, Margaret's eldest granddaughter and namesake, um, Margaret, to to stop Margaret being sent um, to consummate her marriage in Scotland too early. Um, So I think that there are, you know, 
there's more evidence that they got along well together than than not. We know that Margaret sent Elizabeth New Year's gifts, for example. Um, so I think that actually the Spanish ambassador may just have caught the Queen on an off day where she might have been a bit fed up with Margaret. I mean, nobody gets along 100% of the time, do they? And it's just unfortunate, I think, for Margaret that perhaps that one comment on that one day has reverberated down the passages of time and, yeah, gone some way to portraying her as the mother-in-law in hell, um, from hell. But, yeah, like I said, I'm sure she would have been overbearing and annoying at times. But I also think that Elizabeth of York was apparently very gentle by nature and so would have had a lot more patience with Margaret than perhaps someone like Anne Boleyn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I think they really got along quite well. Um, tragically for Margaret, she she lives uh, or she outlives uh, her son. Henry VII, of course, dies before her. Um, do we? I mean, obviously, that must have been awful for her. Do we have any anything recorded in terms of her reaction to that and how it affects her? Um, nothing, nothing really sort of solid. But we do know. I mean, she literally when she when she realised how unwell Henry was and that his days were numbered, she literally dropped everything to move into Richmond Palace to be by his side at this time. So uh, she arranges for all of her own belongings to follow along behind her. And she just rushes to be by her son's bedside. So, you know, her favourite bed, that comes along later. That's how you know desperate she is to be with Henry. And, um, yeah, I think I think we can only really imagine the grief that she would have felt because there was only a very small age gap between them. And, you know, all of Margaret's life, she had worked for Henry's interests. She'd worked to protect him. She'd worked to instill him as King of, King of England. She'd worked to help him keep his throne. And so her devastation at losing him can only be imagined. Mm. Um, but uh, we don't unfortunately have any sort of documents which tell us exactly how she reacted. The fact that she outlives Henry VII, of course, means that she is briefly there for Henry VIII. So do we know anything about her relationship with her grandson? He seems like such a contrast of characters in terms of who Henry VIII becomes. Yeah, exactly. And we know Margaret absolutely adored her grandchildren. There are so many payments in her accounts to presents that she was buying for all of them. And we see this with Henry as well, where she, when Henry turned 16, and he was very interested in jousting. And, you know, rather than, I don't know, what, what do you get for your 16th birthday today? Like maybe an iPhone or something like that? I don't know. Well, in the 16th century, the cool thing to have was a jousting saddle. So it's his grandmother who buys Henry his first jousting saddle to mark his mm -hmm. 16th birthday. Um, and, yeah, by all accounts, they seem to have been quite fond of one another. And I, it's almost, it's so weird how the events kind of play out because it is almost like Margaret, we know that her health was was failing at this time as well. She was in, in poor health. But it's almost like Henry VII, she 
discovered that he was going to die and she almost was like well no I've hang on I've got hang on here my grandson is 17 he's just a couple of months away from his majority at 18 someone's got to make sure that this succession goes smoothly and that this boy knows what he's doing and that is his grandmother um, because she was almost like an unofficial regent during the first couple of months of Henry VIII's reign where she was kind of organizing everything and everyone. And, um, you know, she was she was very much there at the heart of Henry's court in those first couple of months. And, you know, in June, so just a couple of months after Henry VII died, Henry VIII married Catherine of Aragon, of course, his, his brother Arthur's widow. And then the uh, the couple later that month in June enjoy a joint coronation. And then on the 28th of June, Henry VIII reaches the age of 18. So he's no longer a minor. He's an adult now. And it is almost like it's at this point that Margaret thinks, okay, job done. And there's a report that says that she fell ill of eating a signet at the coronation banquet. Um, But actually, again, we do know that she had had health issues prior to this. So who knows? And perhaps her end was hastened by grief. But just the day after Henry's coronation, sorry, after Henry's 18th birthday, so the 29th of June, 1509, Margaret dies at the age of 66. So she had plenty more left in the tank. There could have been more. <laughs> like, the, the, who knows? Oh, that would have been great. But my, uh, a, a signet. A signet, yeah. So baby uh, swan. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I'd definitely be ill eating a swan, but a baby swan I could probably manage. But... <laughs> you could pull that <laughs> Yeah. But maybe not a 66-year-old. Yeah. Add it, add it to lamprey, so death by signet. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Yeah, it's this bloody river fowl. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So yeah, and she, we know uh, her friend and and Bishop, um, Bishop Fisher, who was also her confessor. He says that at Margaret's death, all of England had cause for weeping um, because it was such a loss, basically. So yeah, um, she was very very much mourned by those who knew her and who loved her. I think the one thing that I'd just really like to highlight with her is that there is so much more to Margaret than the portraits allow us to see. So she was a woman who again contrary to the portraits she was a woman who who really enjoyed luxury and the finer trappings of life she she also loved to have fun and to have a good time she had two falls she ordered red and white wine in abundance um she you know even her even her spectacles and her spectacle cases in later life were made from gold so I think that there is a there's a woman who religion meant a great deal to Margaret there's no doubt about that but she was also a woman of her time who enjoyed the trappings of royalty that surrounded her and definitely she was 
very much in keeping with the title of my book. She was an uncrowned queen. So she did behave as though she were a queen in all but name. And Mm. her blood and her lineage was something that she was very proud of and that meant a great deal to her. And that very much shaped her and also her dynasty, I think, moving forward. That's brilliant. I mean, I've got some questions, but I'll take them up with Graham about Tudor glasses <laughs> that I never knew existed. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, I didn't know she had that spread. Yeah. <laughs> never That's imagined brilliant. them. No. Glasses. Start asking someone to fetch their readers. Can't believe it. There you go. <laughs> Henry VIII also, you know, we know he has um, gold spectacles as well. So that is the best Rex fact. <laughs> we've had on this show <laughs> Graham where were you for that one <laughs> Henry VIII had spectacles yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh brilliant well Nicola thanks so much for uh, talking to us today about uh, Margaret and uh, Henry spectacles um, how can people uh, find out more about your sort of follow you in social media etc if they uh, want to uh, yes so I am on Twitter as at Nicola Tallis and I'm on Instagram as at historian underscore Nicola. Um, and yeah, and then I've got my website, which is nicolatallis.com. And I'm usually out and about in the world talking quite a lot. Um, so, and you know, you can check out my events page on my website if you want to come and say hi. Um, yeah. Brilliant. And when's when's the new book coming out? Come I mean, if you said- uh, Oh, that right. is coming out at the end of November. Yeah, so not- oh, like time for Christmas. Yeah, and time for Christmas. Perfect timing. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we look forward to that. Um, Nicola, thanks so much for joining us. It was great talking to you. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Cheerio. So that was Nicola Tallis on Margaret Beaufort. Let us know what you thought about all of that. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the RexFactorPodcast Facebook page or email RexFactorPodcast.hotmail.com. And uh, Ali will, at some point in the coming months, be returning to Facebook. <laughs> to make that I mean, a worthy endeavour. It's, it's, a, it's a mountain to climb. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get lots of bonus content. And you go to www.patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor to do so. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Chloe Hope. Louise Brimacombe. Yay! Low Grant, K.A. Hawthorne, Carolyn O'Brien, Flick Foster, Susie Moffat, Carolina Weisendanger, Leah Egan, Isabel Duff, Fiona Claire Sanders, William Kavanagh, Molly Matthews, Cameron Goldie Scott, Claire Radcliffe, Ethel Fled, Loris Van Rijn, Emily Herbert, Sheila Lofthouse, Kelly Fetty, Crystal Cooper, Emily Tyler, Sam Kelly, Melissa Bodoing, and Kate Nicholas. Uh, anyway, that's all from us today. Hopefully you enjoyed uh, the interview with Nicola. As uh, she said, you can follow her on Twitter, where she is at Nicola Tallis, and her podcast, History Gems, is at History Gems Pod. Uh, that is all from us uh, today and the last of our interviews from uh, the Yorkist Consorts. Um, so we will be doing next a special episode on the Great Fire of London. Oh... Sounds hot. Hmm. Uh, so that's a special episode, a premium one. So the next free episode will be a messages and previews episode. But then we will be turning our gaze to the six wives of Henry VIII, kicking off with Catherine of Aragon. We're here. We're there. We are. We're all over those Tudor wives. See you next time. Hot.